Welcome to Spark Science. This is Regina Barbara DeGraff. As many of you know, I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University, but I also teach courses in science communication. This episode of Spark Science will be the first of a two-episode series featuring student-made podcasts. It will also be our neuroscience episode for this season. You may have noticed there is one per season to highlight this sometimes forgotten science at Western Washington University. The outstanding graduate of Behavioral Neuroscience, or BNS, is Anna Marie Yanni, who interviewed director of BNS Kelly Jansen. I'm really proud of them all, and I hope you enjoy listening to their work. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion gain, ink weight, I'm every element around. Hello, I'm Anna Marie, and today I'm here with Dr. Kelly Jansen, the director of the Behavioral Neuroscience Program at Western Washington University. And today we're going to talk about how cells in our brains help us connect with others. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is what is your specialty? My specialty, I have a number of different specialties, I guess, but in general, my specialty is in human brain imaging using various different human brain imaging tools like electroencephalography and um, functional magnetic resonance imaging and stimulation tools like transcranial magnetic stimulation to understand human uh, interaction and in particular how people interact with objects in their environment. So perception and action, how we interact with our world. Awesome. And what made you decide to study perception and action with these tools or... It started essentially during my um, PhD when I was studying plasticity in the human brain and how the brain changed as we learned to interact with different things in our environment. Um, and then it solidified during my postdoctoral years when I was investigating or I went to a lab where they investigated theories and models for how we interact rhythmically, rhythmically with things in our environment with stimuli that um, are rhythmic, like walking, piano playing, anything that's kind of a continuous movement. And we tested theoretical models for how that worked. And when I moved there, they didn't have a good brain imaging contingent. So I became their brain imaging wing um, of the research and just started studying action, all kinds of different action and perception that I continued studying when I got here. Awesome. So... Kind of as I hinted at at the beginning, um, we're going to be talking about these specific types of cells in the brain mm -hmm. called mirror neurons. So I was wondering if you could give us a definition of what is a mirror neuron. I think the first thing to do is give you a definition of what a mirror neuron is not, mm. um, because a mirror neuron is not a neuron that you can see under a microscope. There's nothing anatomically different about a mirror neuron. Uh, mirror neurons are defined as many types of neurons are defined by their functional properties, by how they respond. So mirror neurons are neurons that respond when you perform an action, but they also respond when you watch someone perform the same or similar action. So if I were giving someone a high five and you were watching me give someone a high five, then the mirror neurons in your brain would look like you were giving someone a high five? Exactly. All right. Some 
if I were to give a high five, there would be um, a large number of neurons throughout my brain in various locations that would activate for performing that behavior. If I were to watch you giving the high five, some percentage of those same neurons would become active. So the idea is that by watching you perform the action, I'm basically planning that action myself. Okay, and preparing for maybe someday when you would need to give that high five, you're preemptively kind of learning that through something else? Well, the idea isn't necessarily that you're learning it, because there is evidence that you have stronger mirror neuron activation if you can already do it. So it may not be related to learning so much as mapping the behaviors of somebody else onto your own abilities. Awesome. So... Mirror neurons are important. There's research on it. You've studied them somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, what are their real-world applications? How would they um, facilitate our interactions with people in the real world? Okay. So first, let me say why they may be important. Mm -hmm. And these um, hypotheses aren't without controversy, of course, as all are. But one of the early and still dominant ideas about what mirror neurons are doing is allowing for a mechanism of action understanding so that if neurons that become active when I perform an action become active when I watch you perform the same action, the idea is that I am somehow representing the goal of that action. And in fact, if you look where mirror neurons are most concentrated, it is in areas of the brain that are responsible for representing action goals. So you have an intrinsic mechanism for action understanding. I understanding the intention of your action because when I see you perform the action, the same action gets activated in me, which is where the name mirror neuron came from. So it's not an explicit form of understanding. It's more of an implicit form of understanding by um, having your brain mirror or mimic the behaviors of somebody else. So if I was watching you reach for a cup of water, then I could, through mirroring some of that action in my brain, assume that you might be thirsty? Right, or at least what the intention of the action is. So if you're watching me reach for a cup of water, um, the way that you know, it's much simpler than that even, the way that you know that I'm reaching for a cup of water is because you start planning that same action yourself. So you have the cup, you see the arm movement, and you're able to say, ah, you're reaching for that glass of water. So it's a much more fundamental form of action. So for instance, you can show that if someone is reaching out, um, one of the early studies for demonstrating that these are really related to action intention is was to have people reach out with the exact same grip and grab an object and either put the object to the mouth or put the object to something that's on their shoulder, like a little container. So the reaching action is the same, the grasping action is the same, the bringing action is the same, and then, then you either eat it or put it in a container. And the only way to know the difference between those two is what's being grasped, the object. One is edible, one is not. And yet you can show right from the very beginning of the action, you can see different neurons activating for those two tasks. So you can see that there's an understanding of the intention of the action based on watching the person and knowing the environment. 
Because I wouldn't just put a grape on my shoulder. I would eat Correct. it. Correct, you would eat it. if right. it was a Lego, then, then the, you would that be... would go on my shoulder. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so I think the question was, what is it useful for? Yeah. And so that's sort of what it's useful for. And it's hard for us to imagine how we're using that or how it plays into our everyday understanding and abilities. But maybe one way to understand that is to look and see what happens when that system doesn't seem to work effectively. And one system, one case where it doesn't seem to work very effectively is in autism, where people have tried that exact same task with autistic children, and they'll find that autistic children actually don't show any kind of predictive activity in their mirror neuron system to this kind of reaching and grasping suggesting that they're not picking up the information about what the intention of the action is and what action is to come based on the observation of somebody else. And this could, at least in part, underlie parts of their difficulties in um, interacting socially with people. You don't have an intrinsic mechanism for understanding what people are doing or how they're doing it. Um, Of course, there's this old um, adage, which is 90% of communication is nonverbal. And I don't know if there's any truth in that number of 90%, but I think it underlies the fact that we all understand how nonverbal communication is. And so um, mirror neurons provide some mechanism, not all mechanisms, but at least one mechanism for nonverbal communication where we can understand um, the intentions and goals of other people just by watching what they're doing. All right, so you said understanding the intentions and goals of other people by watching them. I'm wondering if it's too far of a leap to compare that to the golden rule of treating others how you want to be treated. Could mirror neurons have some root in mapping an action that you see someone else performing to how you might perform that same action or react to it? Um, perhaps. So in reacting to it, we're getting um, a little bit into the idea of empathy mm-hmm. and mirror neurons. And some folks have definitely tried to make the link between mirror neurons and empathy and that mirror neuron activity can help provide informa- information to an empathy system in the brain, to emotional systems in the brain that allow you to understand not only what someone's intentions are, but how they feel or how they're feeling about, or how that makes them feel. Those intentions are related to a goal, and maybe they have that goal because they feel a certain way, and I feel what they feel. I feel their pain, or I feel their joy. And um, so that is definitely one approach that people have taken. Um, sometimes people make the distinction between cold actions, and which are the unempathetic ones, and empathy-related actions to make that distinction. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're thank welcome. Thank you for everything. It was really awesome to talk to you and learn cool. about all this. Do you have to ask me if you can record me? Oh, yes. Is it all right <laughs> if I record this? Yes, it's all right that you recorded this. <laughs>
Hello, I'm Lila Ney, and this is Researching the Researchers, a brief look at research opportunities here on Western's campus. I've had the opportunity to talk with four people across a range of fields currently involved in research, including two undergraduates. I'll introduce them and their research before I start asking about the research experience. Anna Marie Yanni is an undergraduate student in her senior year studying neuroscience and the founder of Western's Poetry Club. She's done undergraduate research about how musicianship influences language processing. That is, how studying music affects how you understand language. So we took 15 non-musicians and we gave them 10 days of musical training. What we did was we tested their speech perception before and afterwards. So the interesting part about this task is we were testing their speech perception, but we were training them in music, which originally people thought there were two different halves of the brain that were focusing on these two different types of processing. And what we did find was that people's speech processing or specifically their ability to discriminate small differences in voice onset time was a lot better after they had gone through this musical training and so that suggests that everything that's going on in this speech processing region of the brain might actually be affected by what's going on in this musical processing of the brain. So you were testing specifically voice onset? Yes, voice onset time. So this is a temporal acoustic feature of speech. What we had was a scale that ranged from a D to a T and so D is an example of a sound that has a really early voice onset time and T is an example that has a really late relative onset time and then we had a scale that ranged from a really good D to a kind of good D to a totally ambiguous stimulus to a kind of good T and then at the end we had a really good T and we were looking at how good people were at discriminating is this a good T is this a good D we found that that discrimination got better after the musical training does that impact their ability to understand typical everyday speech at least with a monolingual American English speakers, we don't necessarily need to be able to discriminate those small differences in voice onset time in order to understand what someone's saying. So even if I wasn't giving you the best D's when I was speaking, you would still be able to understand what I was saying. And so you have more sensitivity to these features. And so the idea is that maybe musical training actually influences your speech processing in a way that neuroscientists didn't know about before. Kathleen Hosa is a graduate student here at Western who is studying minerals on Mars. She's currently studying geology, but as an undergraduate, she studied aerospace engineering. I'm studying Ewing geometry effects on reflectance spectra for weathering rides and coatings on Mars rocks. That maybe sounds like a mouthful. It's honestly not that complicated. The basic concept is just that, like, do the rocks on Mars turn different colors if you look at them from different angles? Turns out it can matter quite a bit. So a lot of the data that I work with comes from NASA's Mars rover Curiosity, and Curiosity does in fact look at different rocks from different angles, so I have that piece of the puzzle from Mars. My goal is to be able to tie those changes in the reflectance spectra that we see to actual physical properties of the rocks. And in order to do that, I have to be able to take a rock and put it in a scanning electron microscope. So in order to do that, what we basically do is we make our best guess about what rocks on Earth might be fairly similar to rocks that we find on Mars. We look at their spectral signatures, 
And if we find a really close match between observations that we take of those rocks and the observations that we see on Mars, well then maybe if we take these rocks and we dig in a little deeper using the scanning electron microscope, using those techniques that we can't do on Mars, maybe that will actually give us some more information about kind of the underlying meaning of the spectra that we collect on Mars. How does getting the data from the Curiosity rover work? A lot of that information is it's in the public domain, so a lot of it's really accessible to pretty much anyone. That being said, in order to get the data in kind of the format that you want it for scientific purposes, it can be much better to go to the source to work with people at JPL. Dr. Ying Bao is an assistant professor who teaches analytical chemistry here at Western. She also leads a research group of five students studying nanoparticles in three main areas, functional nanocomposites, self-organized plasmonic rings, and plasmonic sensors. So I will describe my research as a package. You bring all the dust into a building. So think about a building is not composed by bricks. It's actually composed by little dust. In our lab, we synthesize those a little dust, and that dust can have plasmonic property, can have other fluorescence property. Those dust will compose to a building, and that building is called a composite. We manipulate them in a way that they will self-organize into a designed geometry we want them to be. So that's the first area is a nanocomposite. The second area is similar. So the nanocomposite is bulk material, right? But rings, we are trying to make the nanoparticle align into a ring size. It's kind of also manipulation. The third part is a plasmonic sensor is we are taking advantage of the property of material for example the optical property they can use for the sensing application so this is more like application area so it's kind of like the functional nanocomposites and mm-hmm. the self-organized plasmonic Ring. rings, rings are just getting the materials to build into a certain structure and then the plasmonic sensors are actually using that structure to do something exactly what do you mean by plasmonic so the plasmonic property is is interesting is when you're shining a light into the material, the electron will start oscillate. The frequency of the oscillation will matching the wavelength of the incident light. So that means the light for photon, the energy is converted to the electron oscillation. In UVV spectroscopy, you will see it's a big absorption peak. That means that absorption wavelength is the frequency of electron oscillation because they take all the incident light in, so the absorption is big. And this oscillation is very easy affected by the environment, for example, the nanoparticles shape because you confine the area where the electron can go. So the frequency will different because the distance oh, different, okay. right? The size of the particle also is a similar idea is the confined area, how far mm-hmm. they can travel. Mm-hmm. Also environment because the light will interact air or like polymer, they have a different refractive index. So those are all well all affect the plasmonic property. If we manipulate them, if we want to use this particle to be a sensor, the environment change well, changing the oscillation. If I have mercury ions there or like uh, have a different gas in the environment and mm-hmm. from UVV's peak, you know it's shifted. Ian Mackley is an undergraduate student in his sophomore year, majoring in biochemistry. His research group studies how cell signaling proteins binding patterns differ, but it's still new and a lot of time has been spent setting up the lab. Different proteins can bind to different things. The proteins we're looking at, called PDZ domains, bind to the tail end of other proteins, so amino acid chains or peptides and stuff like that. And if you look at a PDZ domain, you'll see it has a little pocket or cleft where you could sort of shove one of those peptide chains into. 
if it goes by that sort of general mechanism, then most any mechanism will have what's called a binding motif. The thing with PDZ domains is that you can have two different peptide chains that both satisfy that binding motif, but one can bind to five different PDZ domains, which are all similar enough that they're mostly interchangeable. And then you could have another sequence that still fits that domain, but it will bind to 30, even 50, PDZ domains. So obviously the binding motif is not completely correct. Part of what we're trying to do is to figure out what's causing this weird discrepancy between binding patterns. What's the expected application for this project? The part that I'm interested in is definitely the pure theory understanding. There is an application that sort of the other half of our lab is working on, where if we can figure out the rules for this modulation of binding affinities, we can then engineer our own peptides that will selectively bind with different strengths to different PDZ domains. That has huge synthetic drug applications. And if we can design selective drugs, we can have them bind to selective things to have less unintended consequences. So you said that your head professor got here last fall? Yes. And because of that, the lab group has been doing a lot of setup and prep work. So can you tell me what's involved with that? A lot of trying and failing to grow bacterial cells and a lot of making buffers. All sorts of weird or somewhat commonplace solutions for stuff like gel electrophoresis or bacterial cultures stuff like that. Why have you had a hard time growing bacterial cultures? It seems like that should be something easy. So here's a dirty little secret no one is supposed to know about, but everyone does. The cold room in the chemistry building where we keep our cell plates has a black mold infestation. So the bacteria gets overrun by the black mold. Assuming we don't use the right antibiotics, yes. <laughs> it's not actually that big a deal. We just have to do it again, and it's only a day's work, so it's not too big a loss. I also asked each person a series of questions about the research experience at Western. How did you get here? How did you find out about this opportunity, and what got you interested in it? So I'm a Western Washington native, and I always knew I wanted to study science. I've always loved space in particular. I did my undergraduate degree at MIT studying aerospace engineering, but by the end of that I knew that although I still I loved space and knew what I'd been, loved what I'd been doing, I really wanted to be home. I was incredibly lucky to find a professor who was doing research here, uh, working with NASA's Curiosity Mars rover. That's a robot that I'd worked on from the engineering side. It was really exciting to me to have that opportunity to be back in a place I love, still doing the science that I love. I learned about Dr. Jansen's lab through an event series that they used to do called Neuroscience on Tap. And Dr. Jansen was talking about speech processing there. And of course, I'm interested in poetry. So I thought, what the heck? This is the perfect lab. It blends my two interests, neuroscience and poetry. And so I bombarded Dr. Jansen with emails. And then one day, finally got an email back that said, come on in, check out our lab. And ever since, I've been working in that lab, studying how musicianship affects language processing. And it's a really interesting multidisciplinary subject. The main attraction to me is Western is very undergraduate focused. And they emphasize on teaching at the same time with research. I'm very valuable about undergraduate have research experience when they are undergraduate institution. Then they will have better idea, like uh, which school they research pursue what career they want to go. 
Are there any techniques used in your lab that an undergraduate student would not be allowed to do? No, absolutely not. Well, as long as you get chained. No, there are undergraduates in the lab with me that are involved in pretty much every step of the work. Would you say your department strongly emphasizes undergraduate research? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about the program because we are a mostly undergraduate institution and so we are able to work in the lab at a capacity that a lot of graduate students would be working in the lab. My lab in particular, until very recently, didn't advertise at all. It was very much like, you want to do this research, you take the initiative and come find us. And in fact, recently we started to decide that it's really important to be attracting a diverse group of people to apply. So we've started to try to advertise. I think the entirety of the chemistry stroke biochemistry department tries to encourage undergrad research. It, it is one of their big shticks that they have undergrads helping and often getting stuff published under their names. How do you think your field will change in the next five years? And what part do you think your research will play in it? I think that new space technologies are going to be more and more a part of it. My research right now is just about figuring out as much as we can about Mars. That's going to be something that's going to be relevant to anyone trying to go to Mars, right? I'm not sure how massive an impact we'll have. Proteins are a very messy subject because of how various they are. So it might open up new theories for explaining other protein domains like the PTZ domain that bind weirdly. We may be the ones pioneering this field of research. We may just be another theory. Neuroscience, in my opinion, is kind of the next frontier because there's still so much that we don't know. Like if you're focusing on a disease or if you're focusing on a network that's used to process one aspect of learning or one aspect of speech processing, you could discover something that is groundbreaking in the next month. It is really uncharted. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that I haven't mentioned so far? I, I want to tell them, if anyone interested in research, they should start doing research early. Research is not a one-day thing, one-year thing. It's uh, accumulated for a certain amount of time. If you start t too late, usually we'll just gain the experience instead of having really publications. And uh, we're always open to talk to students. Don't be afraid of professors. Mostly we just like to encourage anyone to pursue whatever they're interested in. A lot of people think it's really inspiring, but somehow they also see it as out of reach for normal people. Don't think that. Like, if you're an inter interested in something, just go do it. I'd like to thank Anna Marie, Kathleen, Dr. Bao, and Ian for taking the time to talk to me. All interviews were recorded in Bellingham. This podcast was produced in partnership with WWU and KMRE. Music was obtained from the YouTube Audio Library. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook, at SparkScienceNow. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina barber de Graff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore and Julia Thorpe. Production was also done by Anna Marie Yanni, Lila Ney, and Nicole DeRamo. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.
Prime proton mass defect. Lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant. Mass spectrograph, your electron volt. Atomic energy erupting as I get all open on Betatron's gamma rays. Thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you earn. Tragiradium, if y'all was uranium. Molecule spontaneous combustion. Pow. Law of death, proportion gain. Ink weight, I'm every element around. 